Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at BethelPBC.us. I invite you to join me one final time this morning in the Epistle to the Hebrews. We're in the final chapter. And my intention is, God willing, to bring a, the final message in this lengthy series that we've been looking at for the past uh, about 20 months now. Not every Sunday, of course, but off and on, we've tried to stay at it. And I know you're wondering if there is life after Hebrews. And verse 8 of chapter 13, of course, says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So there is life after Hebrews. I want to read verses 20 and 21 this morning in Hebrews 13 as we speak on a Christian benediction. The apostle closes the letter by saying, Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, Make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Then he concludes with what we might call a postscript. Brethren, suffer this word of exhortation. I want you to receive the letter that I've written. He calls it a word of exhortation. That word exhortation means both encouragement and warning. So brethren, suffer it. That is, don't reject it, but allow yourself to think about what I've written, says Paul. For I've written a letter unto you in a few words. Know ye that our brother Timothy is set at liberty. That's another evidence that Paul is likely the author of Hebrews because he mentions Timothy, which he frequently does in his letters. And Timothy was Paul's young son in the faith. He says he's set at liberty, which probably means he's been licensed or given freedom to preach. So Timothy was a young man, but he is a a preacher that's up and coming. And Paul says he's been given authority by the church of his membership to uh, go forth and to preach the gospel as the Lord directs him. With whom, if he comes shortly, I will see you. So the apostle says, perhaps I could visit with you. If Timothy comes that way, then I'll travel with him. Then he says, salute all them that have the rule over you and all the saints So he says, I want you to tell your ministers, those that are your leaders in the church, because they are teaching you the word of God, and all the other believers with whom you come into contact, give them my warmest Christian regards. Then he says, they of Italy salute you. And of course, another evidence that this was likely written by the Apostle Paul, who spent time in Italy, in Rome, So there are so many little hints throughout this letter that Paul is the author. And uh, the postscript after the Christian benediction that we read in your hearing gives more of those hints. As does the form that chapter 13 takes. It's a paranesis, as we've said previously, which is a rhetorical device, a literary form that writers often used in that day when they had finished developing their main thought, they would conclude their comments with a series of terse staccato imperatives. That is, like he does in chapter 13, you know, let brotherly love continue. Don't forget to entertain strangers. Be content with the things that you have. Don't be covetous, you know. 
He's just giving them just a series of brief words of counsel. And we see that, don't we, in our daily lives when a loved one leaves, the kids get in the car to drive home after visiting on Thanksgiving holiday, and we say, be careful. Make sure you watch the other guy. Call when you get home. Y'all come back soon. We love you. Don't forget that. I'm praying for you. You know, just series of quick little terse. That's, that's what we see in Hebrews 13. So this is a series of final exhortations in chapter 13. The apostle has talked about the importance of love. He's talked about the importance of moral purity, contentment, submission to the authority of God's word. I didn't get to this verse last time, but verse 9, he says, Be not carried about with strange and diverse doctrines. This is a caution against legalism. For it is a good thing that the heart be established with grace, not with meats. He's saying focus on the heart, not on your digestive system. You know, there are some religions that focus exclusively on kosher meals. You're righteous if you eat properly. Now, we ought to eat properly, but that is no indication or determining factor as to whether God is pleased with us. God loves his children that eat Twinkies as much as he does those who eat salads. <laughs> it may not be as good for you, but the point is that there is no moral standard that is determined by your diet. So he says it's a good thing that the heart be established with grace, not with meats. And what he's saying here is avoid legalism, those who would impose rules and regulations on you that are not necessarily biblical. You say, well, didn't the Jews follow strict dietary laws? Indeed, they did. But the reason was so that they would be different from the other nations around them. God gave them every detail for life in a culture that was under his theocratic rule, and that included their sanitation, that included the way they dealt with disease, that included the way they worshipped, sacrificed, and that included even the things they ate. So God was micromanaging Israel. Can I say it like that? To show us that they were a separate people to him, and that was a type of how God is serious about how he intends to be worshipped and served and it pointed forward, my friends, that God gave them a pattern for how they should conduct every area of life in the Old Testament that pointed forward to the fact that the God with whom we deal is serious about how we are to engage him. So he tells us to focus on the heart. And then he says in verse 10, we have an altar. Now, I like the way he says that. We Christians have an altar. Of course, one of the criticisms the legalists were making against these Jews who had converted to Christianity called the Hebrews was that you people are outsiders. We are the ones who have the altar. We have the temple. We have the sacrificial system. We have the priests. You don't have any of that. And constantly through this letter, the apostle has used that word have. We have a great high priest. Yes, we do. We have a priest. You say, where is he, Brother Mike? He's at the right hand of God. He's not in the confessional or at an altar. You say, well, you don't even have an altar. Yes, we do. His name is the Lord Jesus Christ. It is by him that we make sacrifices to God. We do have an altar. What he's saying is the legalists criticize you as being outsiders. And notice he says the Lord Jesus Christ himself was an outsider. Verses 11 and 12 
For the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned without or outside the camp. So those animal sacrifices, he says, they were slain and dressed and burned. Their carcasses were disposed of outside the camp. That is, they were not to be brought inside. That was unclean, so they were burned outside the camp. And he says, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without or outside the gate. Jesus died not in the city limits of Jerusalem, but Jesus died on the town garbage heap, the city dump, Golgotha, the place of a skull where they dumped their trash. That's where they conducted crucifixions. And Jesus died as an outsider, and he's saying, let us go unto him without the camp bearing his reproach. So as Christians, let's not be ashamed to identify with the stigma of the cross. Jesus was not allowed to be a part of any reindeer games. You know, I mean, he was seen as an outcast. And he says, if you're going to be a Christian, you have to be willing to be identified with him, even though the rest of the world says that you're an outsider, you don't have the privileges that we do, he says, be willing to bear that criticism in order to be identified with Jesus. Okay, so I'm just basically hitting a few verses that we didn't get to last time to say that in this final series of exhortations that he gives us here, love the brethren, you know, entertain strangers, be hospitable. Remember, the marriage bed is undefiled, but sexual immorality will incur the judgment of God. Be content with the things that you have for God who said he will never leave you nor forsake you. In this series of final exhortations, he cautions them against legalism and against being intimidated by the legalists who say that you are outsiders. Then he says in verse 15, commit yourself to living sacrificially. By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise. And I think it's interesting, and I preached a sermon, I think, on this years ago here, on the three sacrifices in Hebrews 13. You see the sacrifice of Jesus in verse 12. Jesus suffered without the gate that he might sanctify the people with his own blood. Jesus was sacrificed on the cross. That's a reference to the cross. That's his sacrifice. And that is the foundational sacrifice, the one Jesus made on the cross. Here's the point. Any sacrifices you and I make in serving the Lord, my beloved, are not meritorious. That is, they're not redemptive. You say, I've made sacrifices for the church. Well, those sacrifices do not atone for your sins, right? We sing about that, nothing but the blood of Jesus, not of good that I have done, nothing but the blood of Jesus. It's not your works, your sacrifice. You say, I've sacrificed for the church, I'm thankful you have, but let's understand that that sacrifice that you or I make does not atone for the first sin. Only the cross of Jesus saved our sins. That's the foundational sacrifice. But in response to what he's done, we should make sacrifices of praise. Let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. Now, when have we worshipped God enough? Never. So continually, every day every Lord's day, until the end of your life. You say, well, you would think that he would have been praised enough by now. I'm telling you a thousand eternities will be too short to praise God for what he deserves. So let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. May you and I live lives of praise. For God is worthy of your best esteem and mine. 
Jesus Christ deserves to be praised, my beloved, to the best of my ability and yours. May God save me from ever giving a half-hearted effort in worship, in preaching, in singing. I, I want to praise Him with every fiber of my being because He has been so good to me. Let us offer the sacrifice. You say, well, it's a sacrifice, Brother Mike. I have to, I mean, I could be making money this morning. Instead, I'm wasting time at church. It may be a sacrifice the way some people look at it, but it's a sacrifice worth offering. It not, doesn't atone for your sins, but in response to his sacrifice for you and me, it is a sacrifice of praise that he deserves, and we should be willing to pay the price to make that sacrifice. That is, bring the fruit of your lips. Now, you know, in the Old Testament, they would bring a harvest. Some of them would bring their first fruits to God. He says, if you want a basket to bring to God and say, here's a sacrifice, Lord, he said, bring the fruit of your lips. Verbally express your gratitude to God. And by the way, that's what we do when we sing, isn't it? We sing, great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. All I have ever needed, thy hand has provided. My beloved, we're praising him. We're bringing fruit but it's the fruit of verbal praise, the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name. May we never cease or tire of doing that. And then he says, but to do good and to communicate, forget not, for with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. So here's a vertical sacrifice. Let's praise God and then let's serve others. For with such sacrifices, notice the horizontal in verse 16, to do good, that is help others, and to communicate, that is to share, the word communicate here is the word koinonia, from which we get the word fellowship or communion. You see a similarity in the etymology of the word communion and communicate? Communicate, let's share, let's communicate what God has given us. My beloved, you say that's a sacrifice to share with others, to give. The sacrifice of giving, that's a sacrifice. Yes, my beloved, but God is pleased by it. Giving, though it's a horizontal thing, that we're helping those in need and we're spreading the gospel and helping the church function, that is even an act of worship, rising like sweet incense before God, according to Philippians 4.18. So the apostle has encouraged, he's warned, he's instructed the Hebrews, now we come to the benediction in verse 20, now he prays for them. Now what is a benediction? It's a closing prayer. Sometimes I will ask brother so-and-so to close in prayer, or I will word it like this. I will say, will you say the benediction? Will you pronounce the parting blessing? That's what a benediction is, a parting blessing. Now, under the old law, the priests would pronounce a benediction on the people. They would often raise their hands like so, and they would say, the Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face shine upon thee. The Lord be gracious unto thee and give thee peace. And the people would depart. A closing prayer that's pronounced in the form of a blessing. You know, may this be your lot until we meet again. May the Lord bless. That's the priestly benediction, number 624 through 26 that I just mentioned. You say, well, we don't have any benedictions in uh, the New Testament. Oh, but we do. Read the benedictions in the New Testament, like Paul's, may the love of God 
and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. Amen. Notice the whole trinity. The love of God, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. Now, usually when we pronounce a benediction, I don't raise my hands over the congregation and say some blessing as a final word of encouragement. It wouldn't be inappropriate to do that, but we ask somebody to offer a prayer. Lord, would you accept our thanks for the privilege of worship today and be with us as we leave this place and keep us until we come together again. That's a benediction. Here's the Christian benediction that the apostle uses to close the letter to the Hebrews. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, may this God make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. It's a Christian benediction. And it's marvelously comprehensive. This benediction in verses 20 and 21 in Hebrews 13 encapsulates all the major themes of Hebrews that we've looked at in one grand prayer. Notice there are two parts to it. There's a doctrinal basis to the prayer. That's verse 20. The foundation of this prayer. It's a prayer to God, the God who raised Jesus from the dead, and he did so through the blood of the everlasting covenant, and Jesus is referred to as that great shepherd of the sheep. That's the doctrinal basis. He's pronouncing a final prayer or blessing, and this prayer is to the God of peace, the one who raised Jesus from the dead. Jesus, of course, is the great shepherd of the sheep, and he raised him from the dead according to the blood of the everlasting covenant. That's the doctrinal basis of the prayer. The second part of this benediction is the practical application in verse 21. May this God, here's the actual content of the prayer, may he make you perfect in every good work to do his will. May the God who has done so much for you in saving your soul through the blood of the everlasting covenant, may this God work in your life right now, help you to grow, make you perfect or mature, so that you might be more obedient to him. May the God who loved you and saved you from your sin be with you both now and forever. Amen. That's his benediction. And it's wonderfully rich. Notice the doctrinal basis, verse 20. And the first thing I want you to see is the title by which he refers to God, now the God of peace. Now throughout Hebrews, we've met God as a God of consuming fire. Remember the last verse of Hebrews 12. He says, for our God is a consuming fire. That is, we better take him seriously. (laughs) Serving the Lord is not a game of hopscotch or tiddlywinks. It's not child's play. This isn't a game. This is serious business. God, my beloved, is real. And we need to take him seriously and do so reverently. Let us serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. That's so important in our day. But let's not forget, my friends, that the God to whom we pray and the one we worship is not a God of wrath and judgment anymore to the elect, to God's people. Now he's the God of peace. This is a Christian perspective. Now the God of peace. I'm so glad, my beloved, even though God is to be taken seriously and to be revered and respected and honored, 
let's not forget that he's not frowning at us this morning. He's not ready to say, oh, you did that wrong. Stop. Thou shalt not. Those standards still apply, but he's a heavenly father whose justice has been satisfied, whose frown has been borne by his own son on the cross, and now he perpetually smiles upon his children because his wrath has been appeased. I'm so glad that we don't deal with an angry judge, but we deal with a loving Heavenly Father. Now, the God of peace. Now, that's something that is true only for God's children. The wicked are under his anger. The Lord is angry with the wicked every day, says the psalmist. That's still true. But as far as God's people are concerned, there is no impediment, no obstacle anymore between us and the fellowship of our God, for Jesus has paid it all. He bore all of the judgment that was due to your sins and mine and all of his people, and he's put away. In other words, he has reconciled us to God. I love the doctrine of reconciliation. The word reconciliation means to make peace. And God is now referred to as the God of peace because Jesus has reconciled the Father. God is at peace with his people. Listen to Romans 5 verse 10. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Enemies were reconciled. Now God is angry with the world. I mean, this world, my beloved, is headed for judgment, but you and I, our case is different because Jesus has already borne that judgment in our place. 2 Corinthians 5.18 says, God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them and has committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Do you know what the gospel is? It's the gospel of peace. It's the word of reconciliation. It's the message that God is no longer angry with his own, but his Again, law has been upheld and his judgment has been meted out and satisfied. And now, my beloved, there's nothing left except no condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect, says Paul in Romans 8.33. It is God that justifieth. Now, I don't know about you, but that's the heart of the gospel. That's good news to me. God is at peace. He's been reconciled in Colossians 1:20 it says and having made peace through the blood of his cross by him by Jesus Christ to reconcile all things to himself whether they be things in heaven or things in earth Jesus Christ my beloved has reconciled the whole family of God through his blood and his death upon the cross and we know that the world still has very little peace don't we is there much peace in this world in which you and I live? There is animosity and conflict and strife on every hand. But as far as our relationship with God is concerned, my beloved, there's togetherness. There's unity. And one day he will bring in one, as Ephesians 1.10 says, in his times he will gather together in one all things in Christ. This world will never achieve unification, unity oneness, togetherness, apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there may come a time when men try to enforce unity or compliance. 
A one world government says everybody better comply or you will pay the cost. But I'm telling my friends there will be no real peace until the Prince of Peace who made peace on the cross comes back and puts down every foe and brings every racial conflict and every political disagreement and all of that fades away in the oneness that we have in him. God is a God of peace. And the goal of redemptive history is to bring unity and peace and to manifest that. So I love this title for God. It's a title Paul uses frequently. For instance, Romans 15.33, he closes the Roman epistle by saying, Now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Romans 16.20, he says, The God of peace will bruise Satan under your feet very shortly. He calls him the God of peace. Philippians 4.9, he uses the title again. 1 Thessalonians 5.23, Paul uses it again. Now the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless under the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And because God is at peace with his people due to the fact that he's been reconciled through the death of Jesus on the cross, he's been reconciled to those who were his enemies, you and I may have peace in our consciences. That's one of the themes he's developed in Hebrews. We have objective peace. That's a fact because of what Christ did at the cross. God is not angry with us anymore. But we need to feel that and be assured of that in our hearts and minds, don't we? In our own consciences. And when the gospel is preached, my beloved, you and I may say, oh, is it true? I believe it. And find the peace that passes all understanding in our hearts and minds. And you need that if you're going to live in this world. Because as I drive down Highway 17 or through Myrtle Beach traffic or whatever, I don't feel much peace. How about you? When I see the theft and the violence and the drug addiction and the unethical conduct of the world around me. And I see the efforts made to try to manipulate circumstance so that a certain group of people increases income and the rest are, you know, are left on the short end of justice. So when I see what's happening in our world today, I, I feel very little peace. But you know, I can journey through this world of division with peace in my own heart and mind when I understand that God has been reconciled, that Jesus is our peace, who has made both one, having broken down the middle wall of partition between us. That good news of the gospel, my beloved, is something you and I need to carry with us every day. Now the God of peace. Don't you love that title? God is called the God of hope. Romans 15, 13. Now the God of hope. I love that title. As long as God's on the throne, there's no such thing as a hopeless situation. He's the God of hope. He's called the God of all comfort in 2 Corinthians 1.3. Here he's called the God of peace. And of course the undertone here, the idea is what he's been developing in Hebrews, that Jesus has made the sacrifice that the law pointed to. The law prefigured it for 1,500 years. Every animal that was slain looked forward to that day when the Lamb of God would come and actually pay the price. And he's done that. That's what Hebrews tells us, that Jesus Christ has once for all suffered for sins, the just for the unjust. And now, my beloved, God is at peace with you and me. And you can have peace with him through our Lord Jesus Christ and the understanding of what he's done for you. Notice, secondly, the proof of peace is the resurrection from the dead. 
Now, the God of peace that brought again from the dead. How do we know that Jesus actually achieved peace with God? And the answer to that question is because he was resurrected. Did you know the resurrection is proof positive that the work that he came to do was done? Had Jesus not actually saved us from our sins, had he not finished the work, he never would have come out of the grave for the wages of sin is death. The only way he could get up from death and conquer that consequence of sin is if he had actually dealt with sin once and for all. That's what Romans 4.25 says. He was delivered for our offenses. That is, Jesus came to this world and went to the cross because of our sins, and he was raised again for or because of our justification. The fact he came out of the grave, again, is proof positive that the work that he came to do was done. The people he came to save were saved. 1 Corinthians 15.17 says, If Christ be not raised, you're yet in your sins. That's a fact. What assurance do you have or I have that our sins have been put away if death got the last word in Jesus' case? We have no assurance. That's why I love that next verse, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. If Christ be not raised, you're yet in your sins, but now is Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that slept. Never forget, my beloved, that the resurrection is the heart of the good news. How do you know that he actually achieved his objective? He came to save his people from their sins. Did he do it? How do we know that? Yes, we know it because he came out of the grave. The resurrection proves that sin has been dealt with once and for all. What good news that is. That's the proof of peace. Now, the God of peace that brought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood, notice the price of peace through the blood of the everlasting covenant. Now, he's talked about covenants throughout the letter to the Hebrews. He talked about the Abrahamic covenant in chapter 6, when God made promise to Abraham because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself. And that's a reference back to Genesis 15. Do you remember when God made that covenant with Abraham? He told Abraham to take a, a ram and a bullock and a he-goat and, two, tur- and two, tur- two doves, two turtle doves. And divide the animals in two, except for the birds. You're to put one bird on this side and one on that side. They're too small to cut in two. But, you know, you put half the bullock here and half here, half the ram here and half here, half the he-goat here and half here, forming an alleyway like this middle aisle in the sanctuary this morning. We have pews on this side, pews on this side, but there's an alleyway between them. And God came down in the form of a smoking furnace and a burning lamp, and these are theophanies, that is, visible manifestations of the presence of God. God came down in the form of smoke and fire, and he passed between those pieces. Now, what is the symbolism of that ceremony in Genesis 15, which is referenced in Hebrews 6? What does the symbolism of God walking through these slain animals, walking down the middle aisle between these pieces of dead animals, what does that tell us? God is saying, if I break my word, if I break my covenant, if I don't keep my promise, may this happen to me. He's putting himself on the line. I think it's significant in Genesis 15 that God did not say, now Abraham, I've walked through, now it's your turn. You walk through. God didn't say, I make a promise to you and I will give you an oath to confirm that promise I'm going to put my own reputation, my own being on the line. He didn't say, now, Abraham, now you put yourself. 
This isn't a bilateral covenant. God is not saying, I'll do my part if you'll do your part. God is saying, whether you do your part or not, I'm going to keep my promise. It's a unilateral, one-sided covenant. My beloved, did you know that's what the covenant of grace, the everlasting covenant is? It's one-sided. Now, when Sister Lori and I were married, Brother Sam Bryant officiated our wedding ceremony. He didn't say, Brother Mike, you answer for yourself and for Lori. Do you promise to love, cherish, honor, provide for her, protect her, sacrifice for her, be true to her and her alone as long as as you shall live? And I said, I do. He didn't say, now, would you answer for her also? Will she promise? And I'll say, yep, she sure will. I didn't answer for her. She had to answer for herself, right? Two-sided. You know, each party is responsible. I'm telling you, when it comes to salvation, that's not a two-sided covenant. God doesn't say, okay, I'll do my part, sinner, but you've got to do yours. I'll make salvation available, but now you've got to repent, you've got to believe it, you've got to accept it, you've got to be baptized. I'm going to hold up my part of the bargain, but you have to hold up yours. Your home in heaven, my friends, is not a 50-50 or it's not a bilateral agreement. It is a one-sided covenant. God says, whether you comply or not, and by the way, we couldn't comply, could we? Because we're dead in trespasses and in sins. We're enemies to God. We do not seek God, love God by nature. There's nothing in us that is inclined toward God. I'm telling you, dear friends, grace means that God took the initiative and he did it all. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Notice he didn't say, I will if they will. He said, I will and they shall. That's one-sided. I would have said, I will. Will you take care of Lori? I will. And she shall. (laughs) No, I I can't say that, can I? But I'm telling you, your salvation, my friends, is the work of God's grace from start to finish. He planned it, he executed it, he applies it, and he will finally consummate it one day. And although you and I should show our gratitude for his grace by living lives of obedience, I'm telling you that ultimately speaking, even if we disobey, he will chasten us. But nevertheless, his covenant faithfulness will not fail. He made this covenant with himself. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The Trinity. When God could swear by no greater, usually when we take an oath, I make an official promise, maybe in a court of law or in a marriage covenant, we swear by the greater, don't we? I say, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. I'm saying if... If I break my word, I'm in the hands of God. May he deal with me. But you know, God can't swear by a greater. Because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself. The Abrahamic covenant, what I'm saying is, when God made a covenant with Abraham, that's a picture of the everlasting covenant. That is a revelation of the agreement that was made within the Godhead before the foundation of the world. When God the Father, God the Spirit, and God the Son met in compact and formed an agreement that was so intricate and so well-designed that it was impossible to fail. And our home in heaven is not an afterthought with God. He made a covenant. He planned. He purposed it, didn't he? Before the world began, and everything that Christ did on the cross is an outworking of that plan that 
God made. God loved the people. He wrote their names in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world. Jesus agreed in that covenant to come and save his people from their sins. And in the fullness of the time, he actually did that. The Holy Spirit assumed responsibility for quickening those that Christ redeemed. So that all that were loved by the Father were redeemed by the Son and they will be regenerated by the Holy Spirit and they will finally be glorified without the loss of one. Those he foreknew and predestinated, Jesus justified and the Holy Spirit called and they will all be glorified without the loss of one. That's the everlasting covenant. And though we had an old covenant under the law, a covenant of worship and service, Worshiping God, serving God on the basis of his salvation out of Egypt. I've redeemed you from Egypt, therefore thou shalt keep the Ten Commandments. They, they worshiped God because of what he'd done for them in time. And although the, we have a new covenant in which you and I worship God today, that's one of the themes developed in Hebrews, we worship and serve God today in the church on the basis of the cross I'm telling you, the everlasting covenant is more than a covenant of worship and service. The everlasting covenant is a covenant of redemption. It's an objective covenant that God made with Christ before the world began, that he executed when Christ came to the cross, that the Holy Spirit applies in the new birth. And my beloved, may I say that this everlasting covenant is the foundation for the peace that we have with God today. God is the God of peace because... Jesus Christ paid the price of peace, the blood of the everlasting covenant. Now, the God of peace that brought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant. And then notice the relationship of peace. May this God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, and he calls him that great shepherd of the sheep. Notice the title that is given to Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep. Now, throughout the old covenant, God is pictured as the shepherd of ancient Israel. We all love Psalm 23, 1, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Psalm 80, verse 1 says, give ear, O shepherd of Israel. It's a prayer to God. It calls him the shepherd of Israel. Isaiah 40, verse 9, God says, I will feed them like a shepherd, and I will gently lead those that are with young. God was the shepherd of ancient Israel. Psalm 100, verse 3, we are his people, the sheep of his pasture. He is our God. You know, in Jeremiah 50 and Ezekiel 37, God says, um, my people have been lost sheep. Their shepherds have caused them to go astray. In Ezekiel 37, he says, because the shepherds fed themselves instead of feeding the flock. He's talking about the priests and the prophets used their position for personal gain and benefit. He says, although that happened, he says, yet I will gather my flock with my arm and I will appoint David to be their shepherd. David's been dead for many years when God says that. Obviously, it's a reference to the coming of David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And although God was a shepherd to ancient Israel, Jesus Christ came then in the fullness of the time, and he said what in John 10, 11? You remember, I am the good shepherd, which giveth my life for the sheep. Now, if, if shepherding a flock of sheep is just a job to you, then what's going to happen when a wolf comes? When danger threatens, you're going to flee. You're going to be a hireling. Jesus was not a hireling. He actually got between his flock and the danger and he died. He laid his life down. I am the good shepherd that lays down his life for the sheep. He did that on the cross, my beloved, when he died for you and for me. And now he 
called the great shepherd who was brought again from the dead. As the good shepherd, he laid his life down in definite atonement for the sheep, for those that were given to him by the Father in the everlasting covenant. Now as the great shepherd, he lives to care for those sheep providentially. I'm telling you, the one who died for you is taking care of you right now. The good shepherd is the great shepherd. That's the doctrinal basis of this prayer. Notice the practical application of it. May this God, who's done all of this for you, he planned to do it in the everlasting covenant. He came and executed it at the cross through his, the shedding of his blood. He's been resurrected from the dead as proof that the work was finished, and he now lives as the great shepherd to take care of his flock, watching over them in their lives right now. This is the wonderful God to whom we pray and the one in whom we trust. Paul's prayer and benediction is, may this God make you perfect right now. May he help you to grow spiritually phrase make you perfect is actually a single word in the Greek it's katarizo to a physician it meant to set a broken limb to a fisherman it meant to mend a broken net to a soldier it meant to prepare an army for the battle this is a prayer for divine enablement may this God enable you equip you may his power work in your life may he make you perfect in every good work to do his will. And how does he do that? He says, working in you. God makes you perfect. He strengthens you. He enables you. He equips you by continuing to work in you. Now, God's work for us is salvation. God's work through us is service. But God's work in us is sanctification. God, who loved you and saved you, is still working in you. And that's what Philippians 2.12 says, right? When Paul says... uh, As you've always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God which worketh, present perfect tense, in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. My beloved, are you aware of the fact God is still at work in your heart and in your life right now? He didn't just save you and then leave you, abandon you to say, okay, I'll see you when you get to heaven. He's still at work in your life, knocking off the rough edges. He's had a bunch of them to knock off with me. He's still working it. I'm not there yet. He's still shaping me and honing me and maturing me and putting pressure on me like a father would a child. He's still trying to teach me so that I can be more Christ-like. He's working in you. And why does he do that? So that we may do his will. Working in you to do his will. It's not enough merely to seek the will of God or to know the will of God. You say, what is God's will? I just wish I knew it. We are called to do the will of God. Be doers. Not just hearers, but doers. Jesus talked about in the Sermon on the Mount the importance of doing God's will. And what was God's will regarding these Hebrews? That they would hold the line, be faithful, and commit themselves to a life of faith and obedience to their risen Lord. And God, he's saying, is going to help you to do that. May this God who saved you continue to work in you so that you might do his will and please him, that which is well-pleasing in his sight. The goal of it all and the obedience to God's will is so important because, my beloved, pleasing God is the Christian's great ambition in life. Therefore, since God is 
still at work in our lives, and he's already done so much for us. Let's not be worried if we're outsiders so far as this world is concerned. Let us go unto him, says verse 13, without the camp. Let's go join forces with Jesus. Let's identify ourselves with the stigma of the persecuted Christ, bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek one that's to come. I don't know a better way to end this book than to end it with verse 25. Grace be with you all. Amen. Grace. That's a good note to end on, isn't it? Have we learned everything there is to learn about the book of Hebrews? Hardly. We've just barely scratched the surface. The more I preached on it, the more sort of like those old candies I used to buy when I was a kid. You know, the more you ate it, the more it grew inside your mouth. And you thought, oh, this is bigger than I thought. The, this book, my beloved, is bigger than we've... We, I hope you have a better grasp of it, though, and can see the flow of thought. It's a great book. It's a sublime epistle. There's more to the Bible than Hebrews, that's for sure, but it's not wrong for us, my friends, to focus on the superiority of Jesus Christ. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. May that be a good note for you to leave on this morning.